Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your provision for this church. Uh, We pray for wisdom for our body and for our elders as we financially... um, labor for the security of this church for generations to come with regards to our building. Lord, I pray that even as we take steps closer and closer to meeting in our permanent home, um, that you keep us from thinking that ministry has an end um, or a goal which is not Christ glorified uh, in the church and Christ magnified in the city. So we pray you help us to do that, to focus us through the lens of eternity. And in light of that, Lord, our text today beckons us to act as the church for that end, for our joy and for your glory. And so I pray you give us listening ears and attentive hearts to hear what you have to say um, to us through Peter. We pray this uh, for your glory and our good. In your name, amen. Amen. So imagine, if you will... The date is August 6th, but 2019. A year ago, you're in your backyard chatting with your neighbor. They look around suspiciously, and they call you in and they say, what's your opinion on masks? You can imagine the confusion you would probably have in that time, trying to understand what's he talking about? Why are we concerned about masks? Why is this a discussion? And it probably would pretty quickly uh, manifest that you really have no opinion on that day about masks. But ask that same question today, and you might see that the reason social media exists is for the very purpose of each of us expressing the opinions we have on masks multiple times throughout the week. And the difference is, is given the situation we're in, given the information that's being presented to us and the choices we're having to make, you are no longer afforded the opportunity to not have an opinion on masks. Because the opinion you have on masks dictates the choices you're making here in this building, when you're eating out, when you're having people into your home. And today, Peter's going to ask the church a question, which might seem as out of place as a question about masks in 2019. Yet, given the context and the information he's presented in the scope of his second letter, second Peter, the new information... And the context he's bringing makes this an extremely relevant question which we, as God's church, cannot afford to not have an opinion on. And as we finish the letter, Peter is painting some options for us. Options like burning versus beauty, purity versus punishment, instability versus security. But just as it is with every other option you face, behind them lays a shaping reality of an opinion on something. To actually choose the option you want to choose out of the lists Peter's going to give us today is to be forced to have an opinion on holiness and godly conduct. To choose between which which restaurant you want to eat at, you must have an opinion on food. To choose the house you want to purchase, you have to have an opinion on location. And to choose between the options Peter gives you today, you have to have an opinion on the nature of God's call to holiness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to have an opinion on this, and this opinion is to shape our lives. And the big idea we're going to see today in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 18, is this. 
that the gospel frees us to choose and to experience what is better forever. The gospel frees us to choose and to experience what is better forever. And we're going to see this in three ways today. First, Peter's going to pose a question to us. And this is in verses 11 through 13. And this question is going to be a question on the nature of holiness. That's going to be our first point, the question of holiness. And then he's going to answer it in two parts. In verses 14 to 16, he's going to give his first answer, where he's going to assume the diligence of holiness. And then in verses 17 and 18, he's going to give us his second answer, which assumes a delight in holiness. So first, let's look at the nature of the question Peter's asking and the context of it as we look at verses 11 through 13. It reads as this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if you're watching online or joining us today and you weren't here last week, Peter is kind of picking up mid-thought. Last week in the text immediately preceding this, Peter is speaking to the false teachers of his day who are claiming to be Christian and yet they deny the reality of Jesus' return and Jesus' judgment. And because of that, he holds up the reality that there is going to be one day, the day of the Lord, he says, uh, and in our text today he calls it the day of God, where the earth and all of her works will be exposed by the fire of judgment. And Peter here is warning us of the severity of it. To miss out on what the Bible is calling us to in the gospel is not to be simply missing out on life. He is not cautioning us that if we are not careful, some people will struggle to find a purpose. Some people will have a suboptimal enjoyment in life. What he's warning of with vivid language is the eternal realities of judgment and salvation. The at stake in the gospel is not a way of life or a way of knowing, but it is the reality of your eternal life or your eternal death. It is a big question, one which he says to answer, you must have an opinion, an opinion on something. If you had to think in light of this judgment day language, what Peter would follow that up with, what do you think it would be? I think it would be really natural for Peter to say, in light of all of these things that are going to be dissolved, what sort of people will you be in terms of faith and confession? Or perhaps, in light of this coming day of judgment, what sort of people will you be in terms of charity and good works? Or in light of this coming event, what will your prayer life look like? Or maybe for some of us, in light of this event, what people ought you to be in terms of theological and eschatological study? But instead, what he asks us is in light of this day of judgment and salvation, what kind of lives will you have in terms of holiness and godly conduct? 
two words that are almost synonymous but describe different things. Holiness probably pertaining to an internal aspect of your heart and godly conduct being what that looks like. Lived out, expressed externally. And here's his first question today. The question of holiness. In light of eternity, Peter wants you to have an opinion on how you view living in a holy and godly way. And I wonder how many of us think as highly of holiness as Peter does. In a survival situation, there's all sorts of things you need to do. But a good survivalist knows that what they need to prioritize immediately are the three needs of food, shelter, and water. If you had to make a list of essential resources for your Christian life, where would you rank the need to be holy and to live in a godly way? At what number would that come in if we were to actually prioritize the Christian motivations we have in life? Now, when it comes to living in a holy and godly way, there's a divide, and each side has a ditch that we need to be wary of. Because if you're a non-Christian, or maybe if you're a new Christian, when you hear this, it might confirm in your heart what is kind of the default assumption of what Christianity is, that this is just works-based righteousness. That of course he's calling us to live lives of moral and godly purity. Because if I can do enough of these works, it will tip the scale in my favor. And I will be one whose life counts more towards salvation than towards judgment. Because I've done more on this side. I've done more penance. I've done more good works. I've done more prayers. So we ought to live that way. So that we ought to avoid judgment. It is true that Peter here is calling believers to act in a holy way in light of the end. But as we'll see in our second point today, Christianity is not salvation by good works. At least not your good works. But on the other side, there are Christians who, despite this mindset, fall onto the opposite spectrum. We tend to think that because we have salvation not through works, but through grace, that holiness and godly lives are more optional window dressing of the Christian life. If you have them, great. If you don't have them, who needs them? They become like blinkers on Reserve Street. Everybody gots it. Gots it? That's good. Everybody has it. Whether you want to use it or not, it's up to you. Sure, you could be nice, or you could just do whatever you want to do. We'll all get to Costco eventually. But here Peter is holding up something different, and he knows That the big question you need to ask, that you need to hear, that you might not be assuming in your life, is in light of this, what kind of person will you be? What opinion will you have in terms of holiness and godly living? And it's as if he knows that we struggle to hear that and actually understand it, that he now begins to express how important this is. Like a bucket of cold water, he wants us to fully understand the weight of the opinion he's asking us to have. Look at this in verses 12 through 13. Why should we have this opinion? Because we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But... According to his promise, we, that is the Christian church, are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How important is this? Important enough to include these two big distinctions. When I was touring colleges, looking at which one I was going to go to, I visited Oregon State University. I'm a really big sports fan. Um, I follow it pretty avidly. 
but the, the major sport I'm least concerned with is baseball. And uh, we were touring Oregon State, and I knew enough, I followed it enough to know that the season before, uh, the Oregon State baseball team had won the College World Series. And so I noticed the path we were taking around campus, uh, the, the student who was giving us a tour was kind of reserving for last the baseball stadium, because it was a nice stadium. And uh, we're walking up to it, and he's kind of building up my expectations, right? He's like, so do you like sports? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like sports. He's like, well, do you like baseball? I was like, not really. And so he kind of just looked a little dejected. And we come around the corner, there's this beautiful stadium, and he says, well, our baseball team won the College World Series last year. And I was like, cool. And then we went on with the tour. And there was nothing else, but he had this, like, sense that what I was about to show him, like, in that moment, I was going to say, give me the tuition, let's do this thing. If only I could watch the Oregon State Beavers win the College World Series in, where is it, Omaha? Super exciting stuff we're talking about. This is the hottest thing to come out of Omaha since their stakes. But I wonder how many of us live our lives in terms of Christianity in the same way where there comes a time where we actually have to make a decision and expend a cost. And at that point, the preacher or the person discipling you or your community group leader pulls back the curtain, and what you see is a rinky-dinky Northwest baseball team. And you say, eh. But what Peter is doing here is he is showing two options which we cannot merely shrug off. Two options which we cannot be apathetic towards. Because not only is there the promise of judgment, which even in our world, how many songs are there that disparage this and say, all my friends are in hell anyway. That's where the good time's going to be. But it's not only the promise of judgment that befalls those who refuse to repent, but there is the overwhelming promise of something better. 2 Peter 2, verse 13 says this, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What do we have as a central motivation to the cost of Christian living? A new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. If there's one benefit, the upheaval in our country has on our society today, it is that it is showing us that this world is not heaven. Now, none of us, a year ago, would have said so. We wouldn't have said, this is as good as it gets. But how many of us subtly begin to live as if this is as good as it gets? That there is nothing more beyond this life that we can be satisfied in the comfort of the West, the riches of the West, the success of the West, the comfort of my home, your sexuality, whatever that is. And we secretly live that way. But here we begin to see this world is not perfect. There's something better. In the Garden of Eden, perfection was lost in a moment. But at the cross, the promise of a restored world was promised in eternity. And why does Jesus delay to come back? We saw last week, it's part of God's patience that we might repent. But why else? Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. 
speaking to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that you, that where I am, you may be also. Why is Jesus not here today? Because he is working away at something beyond our wildest dreams. A world for our satisfaction. It took God six days to create this world, and he's like, this is good. This is very good. Repeated multiple times. It's been taking Jesus 2,000 years to build this one. And it's not because he's an ineffective builder, but because he is tinkering with his meticulous divine plan for your joy that this world will be beyond anything you can ever imagine. Wonderful, astounding restoration. We are restored to God. We are restored to nature. We are restored to each other. Everything that harms us spiritually, relationally, and physically, totally taken care of. Perfectly. Astoundingly. And why is it so perfect? Righteousness dwells there. That's what Peter says. Now, that's kind of a word robed in religiosity, isn't it? What do you think about when you think about righteousness? Well, the truth is, if you're following at all what's going on in our country, our country is clamoring for righteousness. Righteousness simply means perfection. A lack of any wrongness. Stunning purity. You see, whether you're clamoring for that for social justice or whether you're clamoring for law and order, what's behind each of those requests are not two poles diametrically opposed, but instead a longing that there would be peace and unity and solidarity. And it's here in this world created for us by God, held back in the present, that righteousness dwells. Where is that righteousness and what will it look like? It is God himself. Righteousness doesn't simply exist. God exists. And he is righteous. We will be restored to a world where we will not be satisfied by things that are created, but we will be captivated by the creator himself. We will enjoy to the fullest not things which are fragile, but the very thing which is immensely infinite and has no beginning or no end, God himself. In other words, can you imagine? And the answer is no, we can't. We cannot imagine a world with no racial tension, no violent protests, no cancer, no birth defects, no pain, no abuse. And yet Christ's redemption is so powerful that it not only removes those in full in this day of judgment, but it provides the antithesis of all of it, of joy and peace and beauty. And if... Peter's logic goes in 2 Peter 3, if what will satisfy you for all eternity is the righteousness of God himself, then don't you want to see glimpses of that righteousness in your own life today? Don't you want to be reminded of the main course which will satisfy by tasting the sample cups of it in your life? 
And there's an assumed answer to this question. I don't know if you caught that. Not many people would say, give me the dissolution of the world and the slow melt. <laughs> well, if you want the new heavens and the new earth, what will your opinion on holiness and godly living be? This is where he transitions to his first answer in verses 14 through 16. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Now he has a little aside. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. We'll come back to him interacting with Paul in a moment. But what we see here is the answer to his first question, the rhetorical question, what kind of person ought you to be in regards to these things? His answer is diligent ones. This is our second point today, the diligence of holiness. In light of all of this, he says, be diligent to be found without blot or blemish and at peace. And there's a contrast here. If you remember a number of weeks ago, in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter is talking about these heretics and these false teachers, and he says they are blots and blemishes. But here, believers are to be diligent to be found without blot or blemish. And we also see that these false teachers are ones whose eyes are filled with pride. They are uh, predatorial. But instead of that, Christians are called to be at peace on the final day of judgment. And again, what Peter is doing is he's reaching into your heart, whatever your tier is of survival checklist, and he is pulling up how low you think of holiness. He's pulling higher and higher and higher, so much so that he's calling you to be diligent to this end. Uh, as many of you did, I watched the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary. Um, I'm not quite done, not sure if he's gonna retire or be any good as a basketball player, but I'll get there eventually. But I was amazed at the episode that keyed on Dennis Rodman, uh, as kind of the, the token role player, growing up in the 90s, you just knew role player equals Dennis Rodman. Now, when it comes to holiness, Dennis Rodman is completely out of place in the scope of a sermon, but when it comes to diligence, he's a stunning example, because Rodman had an uncanny knack for always being in the right place to get a rebound. And what's interesting is this was not by chance. The documentary showed that what Rodman would do is he would go and he would watch film, and he would notice where each of his teammates shot on the floor and where that ball would bounce when they miss when they shot from that specific part of the floor. So he knew that if Jordan missed a three from the right side, the ball generally landed here. If Pippen missed a jump shot from the corner of the key, the ball generally landed there. So before the ball even gets to the backboard, he had meticulously studied to know to move to the right spot and get a jump over the other defenders. It was a diligent scheme. And this is the same diligence, more so, that Peter is calling you to have in regards to holiness that you ought to scheme with such diligence to be found without blot or blemish and at peace. So the question I have for you is, when is the last time you have schemed godly conduct into your life? When was the last time you've taken notes, metaphorically, 
on the ways in which you could help your spouse, your roommates, or your kids follow Jesus? When have you watched film to realize how you might increase in habits of prayer and Bible reading? There's all sorts of things that could look like in terms of being diligent when it comes to our actions, but there's actually a chief action that Peter's after here that's saying all of your diligence must go towards this, and that is that you must be diligent in this day of both fire and salvation to be found in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see the wonderful truth of the gospel, which demonstrates that this is no works-based salvation. Because what are we being diligent for? To be found at peace in him. The word to be found is a legal word. It's a word that a judge would use when he finds a defendant to be either guilty or to be innocent. So when he applies this to the church, it should be understood not that you are capable of being perfect. Not that you are capable of of undoing blots and blemishes that sin has done, but that instead you might make every effort by your actions and by your heart to be found by the judge on this day sinless and at peace. Each of those claims is astounding. That we might be at peace with a judge. We're used to judges making declarations, but rarely does that declaration cause the judge to get down off of his stand and embrace us with a sort of peace. But he's saying in this last day, you can have that peaceful relationship with this judge. His disposition can be for you as he declares you innocent. But how is this possible? We know each and every one of us have sinned. In fact, you know the blots and the blemishes that stain your heart. And like Lady Macbeth, you can wash your hands all you want, but you can't get rid of that blood. But look at the promise of what Jesus does for his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. How do you get to this day? Not by your works, but by Christ's. But what is the imperative that Peter is giving you? Make every effort to be found in him at this day. Do not stray, do not wander, do not stay far off, but come back. Should you step out of the blessing of his shade for a moment, return, come back, be found in him. Make every effort to reap the reward of Christ. This is far more than just mental assent of saying, I believe in Jesus, therefore I am here. It means that we seek to be found in him and take comfort that we are found by him By finding Christ in ourselves, seeing ourselves live the way that Christ has purified us and saved us to live. Remember what Peter said about the purpose of our conversion in 1 Peter uh, 1 verses 8 through 10. 
Look at the language he prescribes here. Second Peter, excuse me. For if these qualities, and he's summarizing qualities of godliness and holiness right before this. For if these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Why do we seek to live lives of holy and godly conduct? Because it reminds us of the most wonderful experience of salvation that Christ has given to us. Every time we live in this way, we are reminded of what Christ has done to purify us for his good. That we are fruitful, not because we are mighty, but because Jesus is faithful. It reminds us of the peace we have with God through the work of Jesus. This sounds great. We should want that. But what does it actually look like in your life? What does it look like for you to be diligent, to be found in him? Well, Peter kind of gives us an example of what this looks like in verse 15. We're going to read verse 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So that's his primary thing. Now he's going to describe it a little bit. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, or when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. And so I love how Peter says this. And this verse was one of the most challenging verses to me as I was reading this, verse 15 in particular, because it really makes you think. It forces you to realize how thoughtless we can often be about this. Because here he's asking us, the verb in the ESV here is translated as count. It can also be translated consider, to ponder, to actively engage our minds in what? In knowing that every patient day between Christ's first coming and his second coming is to be considered for our very salvation. Meaning that for the believer, there is no wasted day that God has ever given to you. Each day is an opportunity to see and to confirm the reality of your salvation by growing all the more in your ability to be changed by Christ and represent Christ more frequently, even when those actions are met with difficulty and opposition by your own sinful heart and the world itself. One of my greatest joys in marriage is waking up in the same bed as my wife, I remember the the first week this happened and just being amazed because of the transition it meant in our life. There was no going to work and waiting for each of us to get off. There was no driving to her house. She was there. And I had the privilege of doing everything with her from that moment on. And it was so exciting to know that here is my wife. Here is the one who I love with me already. And as Christians, when we wake up every morning, we have the joy of realizing that Christ is here with us, laboring with his power for your holiness. That as we begin to practice what seem like detached things, such as holiness and godly conduct, that we are only doing so because Christ has wed himself to us. 
Christ has given us the ability to say no to sin and yes to grace. Each day we are blown away by Jesus' love for us. How? By realizing the way in which his love changes us for holiness and godliness. When you wake up in the morning, do you see each new day as an opportunity to be amazed at the way in which Jesus has grown you? Even when life and circumstances are hard. And this is important because he assumes that he's not the only biblical author to say this. He says Paul writes about this too. Paul's another biblical author, and where Peter's letters focus more on salvation as this future thing where we not only are saved spiritually, but physically in this new heavens and this new earth, Paul is very like, he, Paul is all over the place in his writings. Sometimes he's focusing on this future salvation, but other times he's writing to encourage believers about the instant reality you have right now that you are saved in this moment. In fact, look at how Paul speaks of your salvation in the now in Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so there Paul is using a present and a past language. You are If you have faith in Jesus, despite your sins, you are justified. You are saved. And it's true that as believers, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. But it is also true in Paul's letters and in Peter's letters and in James' letters and in the New Testament that you are also being saved. That true believers will endure to the end in their salvation. Just as people do today, people did during Peter's time. And that's that they look at this language of Paul's using as a past event, and they say, well, if Jesus has justified me already, then it doesn't matter how I live. I've been justified. I can live the way I want to live for my own joy. And they say this then, that this world is as good as it gets. This is salvation in its fullness. To have been saved by Jesus in this life is to have been saved by Jesus forever. And what they do is they write away the promise of the future. And they say, if this is as good as it gets, then let's get what's good. Let's, if this is as good as it gets, let's get what's good. Let's find the joy we want in this world. Let's find satisfaction in this world. And Paul says they do this very thing to their own destruction. And that word destruction is not just missing the point. It's not just failing. It is the same word that is used almost universally in the New Testament to refer to eternal judgment. And so if people do this to our own judgment, why is it that we often minimize God's call to live holy lives? It's because we often think that in saying no to sin, God is calling us to say no to joy. Isn't that ultimately why we sin? Because we think that it can provide greater satisfaction than obedience can. It makes me think of a Wiley the Coyote cartoon. Remember Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? And there was, uh, he's, he's constantly searching for the Roadrunner, trying to pin it. And there's one scene where he's finally cornered him up in a tree. It's a coyote, which is a bird. Do Roadrunners fly? Is this, am I missing this? Do we have any? You can tell me later. Um, anyway, uh, so, so the coyote climbs up in the tree and gets on the branch of the woodpecker. And he begins to jump up and down on the branch, trying to break the branch so the roadrunner will fall and he'll finally have his prize. But what happens 
is he jumps on the branch and it breaks and like a springboard, it springs the roadrunner up safely to the next branch and it's the coyote who falls to his cartoonish destruction. And you see, what's really interesting is that in the early parts of church history, right after the New Testament was written, there were new heresies that came up in the church. And these heresies were super important, but they were also kind of complex. Heresies regarding the Trinity. Heresies regarding the divinity of Christ. And what we can often do is we can often equate dangerous heresies to things that are really complex that we can't accidentally stumble into. But what Peter is showing here is the simplicity of this first heresy in the church. Here Peter says the first heretics were not those who denied the Trinity or the divinity of Christ, but the first heretics were those who confess Christ but believe there to be greater joy in following the world and cherishing sin than in obeying Christ and choosing godliness. You see, in their desperate attempts to find joy and to free themselves from God's word, they break the very branch they sit on and they find themselves destroyed. They want joy. They turn for what God has, from what God has given and they reach their own destruction. So what do you do knowing this? This is Peter's second answer, the delight of holiness. Read with me, 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So now we know at this point, right, if we're following his logic, we know there's nothing more important to consider when it comes to judgment and salvation than the holiness given to us in Jesus Christ. There is also new days and new temptations that come to us, and each of those days and each of those temptations is the promise of God to see how Christ endures, that you can endure safely in this present time. We can see there's greater joy in obedience than sin. And so now he says, knowing all of this, what do you do? Well, he says you actively look out for what is dangerous while growing in what is satisfying. The first thing we do here is he calls us to take care that we do not believe and act according to these false teachers. This word take care is a military word. It's a word that, that uh, can be translated as a sentinel, to be a lookout, to be on the watch. We have a Mount Sentinel in Missoula, which sits at the mouth of Hellgate Canyon where the Native Americans would ambush the wagon trains going through the valley. And that mountain, that sentinel, stood as a reminder to all who went through it to take care, to be on your guard, to not close your eyes. What are we to be on guard for as Christians, for places in our lives, people in our lives, and priorities in our lives which tend to downplay our conversion by making holiness optional at best and joyless at worst. To believe this lie, Peter says, to get mixed up on this is to be carried away. Like a current in a river where you lose all of your footing and is to lose your own stability. Remember the danger Peter says about this. In 2 Peter 2, verse 14, it says this, speaking of the false teachers, 
They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. To think this way is to be an unstable Christian. To be one in danger of being carried away to your own destruction. It is to risk falling. The word he uses here of being carried away is, is something that says, to, it, it communicates to, be, to lose by falling away from something, like a petal falls from a flower. The world will try to convince you that God's commands to live for his glory is a dubious decision at best. That instead, if you prioritize this world and these joys, that's your key for joy. That's how you get upward mobility in life. But in all reality, it is to fall from the very thing for which you were created. And instead of falling, instead of being unstable, believers are commanded to grow. How are you to make sure that you don't get carried away by the currents of false teaching? You grow so big that no current can move you. That's what he says in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So at this point, Peter has defined some key things in this letter. He's talked about the doctrine of conversion. He's talked about the authority of Scripture, the fleeting promise of false teachers. He's doubled down on the doctrine of salvation and the second coming of the, the eschatology of a new heavens and a new earth. And here, peace in Jesus Christ. In light of all of this, what does Peter want you to do with this text? He wants you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Contrary to falling, we are to increase. Contrary to being swept away, we are to become larger, more solid, more robust in what? In our experience of grace through the knowledge of Jesus. Now this is interesting because when we read this, we can often think that what Peter is calling us to do is to be more gracious towards others. To increase in grace in the knowledge of Jesus means that we become genuinely nicer, genuinely more gracious people to those who are around us, and we also know Jesus. That's not what he's calling. That is a good biblical thing. That's not what he's calling us to here. In fact, he is using an imperative, commanding you to increase in your experience of God's grace. He is calling you, he is commanding you to become more amazed, more worship-filled, more stunned at the love of God for you. He wants to rescue you from the mediocrity of worship and to grow into an amazement which satisfies. How? Through the knowledge of this Jesus, of this radiant, wonderful, stunning King Jesus. He closes his letter calling for this knowledge to increase, but this is what he opened with. Remember in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Do you want to endure well to the end? Know Jesus. Do you want to resist false teaching? Know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the most practical means of Christian growth and conduct, according to Peter. Knowing Jesus brings peace in the chaos. Knowing Jesus gives instability in a chaotic world. Knowing Jesus reminds us of the purity and transformation his death accomplishes for us. Knowing Jesus makes us yearn to be with him in a new heaven and a new earth. Ultimately, the only opinion which shapes everything in your life is the opinion you have about Jesus. 
And if you really want to know him, in closing, Peter's given three ways in this in his book, where we can seek to know Jesus in a way where we are more amazed at his love for us. And that is the first, you know Jesus primarily through conversion. That's repenting of your sins and putting your faith in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And that's what he spends the first four verses of his letter doing. It is, the primar- it is primarily in your conversion that you see Jesus' beauty. It's in your conversion you see his love. It's in your conversion you see his mercy and his affection for you. You cannot know Jesus without being saved by Jesus. So if you want to know him, if you feel like you've struggled to know him, if you've struggled to see him as beautiful, then you need to either look to Jesus for the first time or return to your conversion and see the wonderful things which he has done for you. How he has taken your sin and your judgment and given you his life because he loves you. If you want your life to be changed, it starts by being changed by Jesus. And that's how we know him. Secondly, you know Jesus by seeing him as the central and primary truth of all scripture. That's what he does at the end of chapter 2. Peter calls us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of scripture so that you can begin to obey him in all of scripture and see that everything the Bible is calling you to do, it's calling you to do because Jesus changes us. Jesus is wonderful. He is astounding. And if you see him in this word as he is, you will fall more and more in love with him every day. And you'll want to be changed by him more and more. So if you struggle to read your Bible, then it makes sense that you might struggle to know Jesus. And the solution isn't to go to seminary. The solution is just to read your Bible, and sometimes we need help with that. So read it in community. Join our Bible reading groups on Wednesday. It's a great opportunity where we together just read the text for that day, and we talk about what this is teaching us about Jesus. And so we look to Christ in conversion. We look to Christ in Scripture. And then lastly is that we become part of a faithful church. You see, Peter spends the majority of this book warning people of false brothers and sisters in Christ who are calling them away from following Jesus. Which means that if we want to know Jesus well, we should surround ourselves as a church with brother and sisters who help us follow Jesus better. Who point us back to his beauty and glory even when it's hard. Sovereign hope should be a place where you come and see the grace and the knowledge that Jesus brings us. It's not to say that all of our members will show you how easy it is to follow Jesus. But it's my hope that our members would show you how joyful it is to do it even when it's hard. That this is truly what satisfies because in the weight of the world, the tension of our hearts and the affliction of our flesh stands for us the hope of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is and where we will be at peace because of what Christ has done. So what does that look like for you? to be helped by others or to help others know Jesus through pushing each other towards holiness, something which only Jesus can do. So let's pray that Christ accomplishes this in our midst today. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the transformation you've had in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you make us people who endure who do not get turned aside by destructive heresies, who refuse to cherish the, the treasures of sin over the treasures of grace, and who most of all know you deeply in a way that satisfies, in a way that pushes us to grow in that understanding. 
Lord, make our lives opinionated in issues of holiness and godly living. Do it so that we might know joy and do it so others might see joy. We pray all this in your name. Amen.